0: The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu.
1: So we have uh, organized three lectures. And the basic idea of the lectures are to cover some of the major current issues in nuclear arms control and nonproliferation. Okay? So uh, we have uh, the first lecture today on India and Pakistan, which is one of the world's uh, possible flashpoints, uh, meaning that this, there's a, there's a, a path uh, to a possible nuclear war Uh, Which I won't go into, Uh, Vipin Narang will certainly spell out the case, but in my view, uh, in trying to decide what to talk about, uh, this was a golden opportunity because Vipin is here and he's an expert uh, on these issues, and uh, I consider this, as I say, one of the possible flashpoints in the world, one of the possible conceivable paths. Uh, No path is super likely, if you want to put it that way, but but the effects of a nuclear exchange are catastrophic, both for the people who get hit, obviously, because a nuclear weapon, I don't have to tell you, is incredibly destructive. In Hiroshima, something like 40% of the population was killed more or less instantly, burns or blasts and uh, probably another 20, 30% died within a year of radiation. So uh, in addition, people have realized that there are severe climate effects of a nuclear exchange. One of the things that happens with all the burning that goes on is that soot is emitted into the atmosphere. Uh, This is the opposite of global warming. This is global cooling. This is like a volcanic explosion. And in about 1815, 1816, there was a volcanic explosion uh, in Asia. And there was a winter without, there was a summer, excuse me. There was a summer without crops in Europe, Okay, And there was actually starvation in Europe due to this explosion. It was a one-time thing. Uh, The uh, climate models uh, for even a limited nuclear war in Southeast Asia uh, show that this effect would probably last five to ten years and be uh, global. Okay? From roughly a hundred nuclear weapons. So there are papers. I can give people references if they want. Uh, There's a paper in Physics Today a few years ago about this, but there are many papers on this subject. So one of the things I want to say, uh, so the second lecture will will be on, on uh, proliferation and, and uranium uh, enrichment and the implications. So these lectures will combine both technology and policy. And finally, the last lecture I will give, And it's kind of an overview of where we stand on nuclear arms control and proliferation. I'll try to fill in some of the gaps. I'll talk about the nonproliferation review that's coming up at the UN next spring. I'll talk about the outlook for arms control as I see it. Okay. I want to talk a few minutes to the students, uh, because uh, one of the things that's happened over the last few decades is since the collapse of the Soviet Union in about 1990, uh, people stopped worrying about the bomb, so to speak. Uh, before that, uh, there was a lot of concern. Students were asked to duck under their desks and things like that to protect themselves, which, of course, was totally ridiculous. Uh, a wooden desk wouldn't do you much good in a nuclear war, (laughs) as you can well imagine. Um, It'll just probably knock you on the head or something. (laughs) God knows what it would do. Uh, But uh, the issue has kind of fallen off the table. And the thing that concerns people more on campus, when if they think about global issues, is, 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 is climate change and global warming. OK, but this is an issue which has not gone away. If anything, the probability of, of a nuclear exchange is higher now than a decade ago, unfortunately. And we have not solved these problems. And there are political and economic uh, problems. And I just want to say a few words about some of the intellectual problems that need to be solved. For example, on a technical basis, there, there are inspection issues. Okay? For example, how do you inspect uh, whether or not a country is cheating on its nonproliferation obligations? How, how, do, how do you look for weapons production or, or enrichment production? These, these are very difficult issues, okay? and they're very difficult technical issues. So, and then there are issues in which uh, you have to combine technical issues with policy. For example, if we're gonna go down to a very small number of weapons, as you wanna do for nuclear arms control, then uh, cheating with a small number, particularly if you're gonna go to zero, uh, cheating with a small number becomes a bigger issue. So, So verification issues are very important reinventing the bomb, you know, if you really went to zero. So there are all kinds of intellectual issues uh, that need to be worked out, okay? Both historical, technical, and political. And there are many opportunities uh, for research in these areas, okay? Europe's and theses. So I just want to point that out. And there are also positions in, in government and NGOs. In the last semester, we had several major arms control negotiators from the US government, including Rose Gottmüller, who was the chief negotiator on the US side uh, for the New START treaty, said she was particularly excited to give a talk at MIT because we really needed a generation of technically trained people to go into nuclear arms control. And she made a special plea. So I want to pass that along. Uh, so I'm going to get uh, to today's uh, lecture. Uh, Vipin Narang, he's a professor at, uh, uh, in the MIT political science department and, and the security studies program. Uh, he's got a BS and MS in chemical engineering. Uh, He's got a degree from Balliol College, where I spent a very happy semester at Oxford. Uh, and uh, he's written uh, extensively on uh, nonproliferation and, and issues of, of uh, arms control deterrence, in particularly with respect to Southeast Asia. And he's got a, a book recently published
0: on regional powers and international conflict. So, Vipin. Great, thanks, Aaron. Thanks for the kind introduction and uh, for organizing this. Um, So, as Aaron said, I'm a professor in the political science department, uh, and I work primarily on nuclear strategy and proliferation. Uh, And so, uh, what I thought I'd do today was talk about, give an overview of nuclear proliferation and uh, the consequences of proliferation in South Asia, between India and Pakistan, which is, as Aaron mentioned, an active and ongoing conflict where the threat of conventional war uh, is persistent. And uh, there are periodic militarized crises between India and Pakistan uh, that uh, put both countries at the risk of conventional conflict uh, every now and then. And now that both sides, both states, have nuclear weapons, the question is what the likelihood of escalation of the nuclear level is. Um, Just as a preview of my own thinking and writing on the subject, I think uh, India and Pakistan have so far been lucky in that a conventional conflict has not yet escalated to the nuclear level, but that's not a foregone conclusion going forward. And I'll I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, And it's one of the regions where there's still active arms racing between India and Pakistan. Uh, And so I'll talk a little bit about that and what the dynamics. Uh, have been with their nuclear strategies and what the effects on uh, the relationship between India and Pakistan are. If you have any questions at all uh, during the lecture, don't hesitate to stop me. Um, I know there are diverse backgrounds here, people from different departments, undergraduates, graduate students. Uh, I'll go through um, some basic uh, theoretical material first. If, that's, if everybody is you know, okay with that, we can move through that pretty quickly and talk about India and Pakistan. Uh, So, as I said, India and Pakistan are both in the process of building up their nuclear delivery systems uh, and uh, their nuclear arsenals. This is a picture of a Shaheen missile, which is a Pakistani long, uh, it's a medium-range ballistic missile in the Pakistani inventory. And it's based off of a Chinese export missile, the M-class exports. Um, And uh, both are actively testing short- and long-range cruise and ballistic missiles as their inventories are growing. Uh, and that is uh, one of the concerns, I think, as we uh, talk about South Asia. The, the basic puzzle, though, is, uh, does anyone know what these pictures are from? So in in uh, November, November 26, 2008, two weeks before my wife and I got married in Delhi, actually, uh, a group s- nominally sponsored and based in Pakistan, the Lushkar taiba orchestrated and. Uh, a pretty daring sea-based, sea-launched attack against Bombay, where about 12, a dozen militants, uh, led by um, the one survivor from the militant uh, group, Ajmer Kasab, Kass, uh, pictured here, uh, sieged the Taj Hotel, the Obra Hotel, um, the Chabad House in uh, Bombay, and killed over 170 uh, Indians and Westerners. Uh, And the Indian government was faced with the decision about how to respond to it. This was the third provocation that the Indian government believed was sponsored by Pakistan since 1998, the year in which they tested nuclear weapons. Uh, And the the question facing Indian leaders, how do we respond to a state that sponsors militant attacks against our our metropoles, targets our hotels and our financial center, when they have nuclear weapons? And so the worry in the Indian government was that nuclear weapons had emboldened Pakistan to sponsor these groups who were perpetrating more daring and audacious attacks against India. And because Pakistan had nuclear weapons, India didn't have a conventional retaliatory option to punish Pakistan for these attacks. And so the Indian government for a decade has been trying to deal with what they believe is a a policy paralysis about dealing with a Pakistan that is more willing to support militant organizations to attack India now that it has nuclear weapons. So brief outline of the talk. I'll talk a little bit about basic deterrence theory, right? In political science and in economics, uh, the core of nuclear strategy, both in the Cold War and now, is deterrence theory. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Hopefully it's not too basic. Uh, I don't need to talk about the basics of nuclear weapons to a physics audience. We'll go through it really briefly. And some of the choices states have to make and how they operationalize their arsenal, which are really important in the Indian Pakistan context. I'll talk about the causes of and the process of nuclearization in South Asia, how and why India and Pakistan acquired nuclear weapons, and then I'll close with the consequences and where we are today, Um, focusing mostly on the period since May 1998 is the breakpoint in the India-Pakistan nuclear equation. That's when India, led by the then um, BJP government, tested nuclear weapons, followed three weeks later by the Pakistani government. I'll close with some conclusions. So basic deterrence theory, right? So the definition of deterrence, very simple. This is a definition of deterrence. This is all inspired by guys like Tom Schelling, uh, Herman Kahn, Albert Wolster, anybody familiar with Cold War nuclear strategy, this will be familiar too, right? So basic deterrence theory in any context is trying to preserve the status quo by threatening unacceptable costs to an opponent or an adversary if they do X, right? Some specified action. So if you do X, I will do Y. And the idea is we preserve the status quo, and the idea is that why the punishment that you impose on your adversary opponent should uh, be greater than the benefits of them achieving whatever their objective is, X, such that they are deterred from undertaking the action. Tom Schelling used to love examples with children. So uh, I have an 18-month-old son, myself, and he's starting to understand things, and uh, you know, one as as children get older, right? It turns deterrence by punishment. Uh, example that Tom Schelling used was if you if your child does, you know, something something bad, you punish them by sending them to their room, denying them dinner, uh, time out, right? So there's some punishment after the fact if they do X. In uh, another example is if you um, if you hit me, I will kill your mother. Right, So there's a, there's a punitive aspect to uh, the uh, deterrence threat such that the punishment exceeds the benefit of whatever an adversary's objective would be. So in the Cold War, the deterrence by denial threat was counterforce. We were going to disarm and target their own nuclear forces to make it impossible for them to carry out the, their first strike. So in a in a case where somebody is attacking me a deterrence by denial threat would be instead of killing your mother i'd cut your arm off so you can't attack me right and presumably the cost of cutting your arm off so you cannot achieve your objective in the first place is sufficient to deter you from undertaking it right so the a good way to think about this deterrence by punishment is we will we will punish you with such severe costs after you undertake the action such that you, you'll have no incentive, rational incentive to do so, versus we will ratchet up the costs while you try to achieve the objective such that you won't be able to in the first place. So I think that's a, it's an important distinction when we think about nuclear strategy in the, even in the South Asia case, but in the Cold War, the distinction was counterforce versus countervalue, right? So for those familiar with Cold War nuclear strategy, when we threaten to target Soviet cities or their economic or industrial capacity, That was largely a deterrence by punishment strategy. So in the event that they launched a conventional or a first nuclear strike against us, we would retaliate against their cities. The alternative was, and this was a big debate early in the Cold War, in a case of a conventional conflict, we would launch nuclear weapons at their nuclear weapons such that they would not have the ability to launch those weapons at the United States or its allies. So the deterrence theory has several basic requirements. Call them the three Cs, right? So you need to have the capability to impose the threat that you're promising, right? So uh, if if you're threatening to destroy an adversary's cities in the event they do something, you need to have the capability to do that, right? So you need some explosive capability, but you also, most importantly in the nuclear sense, need a delivery capability. You need to be able to hit their cities, right? And it needs to be transparent to the To the adversary, it needs to be credible, right? And this term, credibility, and the concept of credibility, is what dogged Cold War strategy, and still dogs nuclear strategy today, right? Credibility is the hardest part of this. How could you threaten what was tantamount to, you know, mutual suicide, and have it be credible by your adversary, right? So, in the event of, you know, uh, so in the in the Cold War, a good example is. If the Soviet U- Union took West Berlin, was it really credible that the United States would threaten to launch hundreds of nuclear weapons at, the Soviet, at Soviet cities? The Soviet Union probably didn't think so. Right? And so in a deterrence by punishment versus deterrence by denial trade-off, which one do you think is more credible? Right? So in the case where an attacker is coming at you, is a more credible threat threaten to kill their mother in response or to cut off their arm? What is an attacker more likely to believe? It is, it is disproportionate to threaten certain punitive action. And so it is often more credible. And this is where the trade off between the, the, the debate early in the Cold War about deterrence, deterrence by punishment versus deterrence by denial turned on the credibility differences between the two. That deterrence by denial seemed to be more credible. The adversary is more likely to believe that you would try to stop them from achieving their objectives than to kill millions of innocent civilians that had nothing to do with the fight in the first place, after something had already happened. And so the United States ended up threatening both, right? So the, uh, and part of it was that the the size of the US arsenal made it possible to threaten both. Um, But there were, I think there were many strategists who believed that the deterrence by denial missions were still more credible to the adversary. But at the heart of deterrence is this issue of credibility. And the third C is communication. The adversary needs to know that you have the capability and the credibility to threaten the punishment or deterrence by denial um, threat that you, uh, that, that you make. Right? So you have to make a threat. It has to be public. The adversary has to know what the threat is. The adversary needs to know what objective you're li- you know, laying a red line down for and that you have the capability to inflict the punishment that you threaten. So there's a huge amount of transparency that is required for deterrence to operate. Right? Has anyone seen Dr. Strangelove, the movie? Right? What's the problem with uh, the doomsday machine in, in Dr. Strangelove? There's a great line, what's the point of a doomsday machine if you don't tell anybody about it? Right? For doomsday, everybody, the, the adversary needs to know that undertaking certain actions will result in some punishment for deterrence to operate. So, nuclear weapons and fit, you know, deterrence as a concept predated nuclear weapons, right? The concept of ratcheting up the cost to try and deter an adversary, you know, predates nuclear weapons by centuries, since the, you know, dawn of warfare. But nuclear weapons fundamentally altered deterrence equations for several reasons, right? One, the explosive yields, in and of, as Aaron mentioned, right? Even the Hiroshima bomb, 20 kilotons, could kill 100,000 people. You could kill cities entire cities with, you know, a single warhead. But more than that, the missile age really changed how deterrence could operate because prior to nuclear weapons, what was the most destructive military technology in, state in, this, in state's inventories? Does anyone know? Before nuclear weapons in World War II, how did the United, how did the United States and allies and Germany attack strategic bombing and firebombing, right? <laughs> And the problem was that you had to send hundreds of airplanes and sorties into enemy territory to inflict that kind of damage. So your own pilots and air force was at risk. Now, with the missile age, you could launch warheads at no risk to your pilots. The numbers that you were required to uh, destroy entire cities were much smaller. Right? So you could ratchet up the cost really quickly without incurring much cost yourself in the way the strategic bombing and firebombing required of... Uh, of states prior to the advent of the nuclear age, and one shouldn't underestimate the psychological impact of an adversary being able to destroy entire cities with a single warhead from afar at very little risk to itself, right? So nuclear weapons ratchet up the the ease of imposing punishment in ways that didn't exist prior to the the nuclear age, So nuclear weapons fundamentally changed deterrence equations. I don't, is everyone familiar with the basics of uranium, plutonium, nuclear weapons, right? So I don't need to go through enrich uranium, plutonium uh, from reprocessing. Those are basic fish and weapons. And you have boosted fission weapons. So what is important, I think, is most regional powers are operating, so India, Pakistan, uh, South Africa when it had nuclear weapons. So South Africa, a little known fact, South Africa had nuclear weapons from 1979 to about 1991. Um, uh, most states start with fish and weapons. Move to boosted fission weapons. The advanced nuclear powers have fusion weapons. Most of the United States' uh, nuclear uh, inventory is composed of uh, thermo- These are thermonuclear weapons, right? So when you th- think of the A bomb, that's fission and boosted fission weapons. The H the H bomb uh, are fusion weapons. And you know the United States has extremely advanced dial up, dial down yield uh, nuclear weapons, but they're all. Uh, thermonuclear weapons, where there's a primary that ignites a fusion secondary. But most regional powers are operating here, right? So North Korea, India, Pakistan. Uh, Israel is assumed to have boost-efficient devices, but it's possible they have fusion weapons. It's unknown. They've never tested or acknowledged their their nuclear forces. Um, Britain, uh, well, Britain is basically an adjunct force of the United States. They lease their weapons from the United States. Uh, for their tridents, so uh, those are basically U.S. weapons. The French have fusion weapons, um, but India and Pakistan are operating in the fission, uh, boosted fission range. Right? And, I mean, that's important when when you can get to megaton yields. You're talking about characteristically different weapons. The number that would be required to destroy an entire city uh, are much lower once you have fusion weapons. But obviously, a fission or a boosted fission device could do a lot of damage as well. But once you have nuclear warheads, that's not that's not you know, you're only halfway there in terms of operationalizing like a nuclear arsenal. I think this is often forgotten when we talk about the proliferation process. State, states need more than just nuclear weapons and warheads, functional and reliable warheads, to have a nuclear arsenal. They need delivery capabilities, right? So for the first question you have is, okay, how many and what type of nuclear weapons do I want to have? India and Pakistan are still answering this question. It is unclear how much is enough for India and Pakistan. It is unclear how much is enough for China, right? China has about It's estimated in the 200 to 400 uh, thermonuclear weapon range uh, arsenal size. Uh, But faced with U.S. missile defenses, uh, conventional counterforce capabilities is unclear how much is enough for China, right? You need to be able to, a big piece of, you know, uh, answering this question is a big concept in the, in the Cold War was uh, secure second strike capability. So we were worried about, the United States was worried about a bolt out of the blue first strike. You would lose n number of weapons. You needed to have enough that would be able to survive that, not only in terms of numbers, but in deployment modes, right, where they were, where they were based and how they were based, to be able to retaliate back with certainty against the Soviet Union, such that it deterred the Soviet Union from trying to uh, undertake what was known as the splendid first strike in the first place. A splendid first strike being the ability to fully wipe out your nuclear arsenal. So secure second strike capability is uh, for states is when they achieve a level of numbers and deployment modes such that an adversary cannot be confident that it could fully disarm that state's nuclear arsenal. Other question is how do you deliver them, right? So most states start with aircraft. You've got aircraft. You rig them to carry nuclear weapons, but what's the problem with aircraft as a nuclear delivery? capability yeah you, you have to penetrate enemy defenses right you're not going to get there without a fight and so you know it's not uh, it's not the ideal type of delivery capability right we had strategic bombers with huge complements of you know escort aircraft they were not survivable the advantage to aircraft is you could recall them right they're piloted so bring them back the disadvantage is they still have to penetrate an enemy. Air forces, air defenses. Sorry. So then, the United States and most regional powers are attracted to ballistic missiles of various types. Right? Ballistic missiles have the advantage that you can launch them from afar. Right? They have different ranges, liquid fuel, solid fuel. Uh, They're it. it, It's not risky for the user. They can't be recalled though. But there are different basing modes. Right? So you can have land-based ballistic missiles right? We have ICBM silos in Wyoming and North Dakota. Uh, You could have mobile ballistic missiles on land. We moved, the United States moved quickly to sea-based ballistic missiles, SLBMs. Why? Why do you think sea-based is is attractive, at least for the United States? Right. So uh, in theory, if your subs are quiet enough, they're virtually 100% survivable, right, because they're very difficult to track if your subs are quiet enough. Uh, And this is something, you know, there's an assumption that once a state acquires a sea-based capability, it has uh, a survivable second-strike force. That's true probably in the US case, but uh, other states' SSBNs, the sea-based ballistic missile nuclear submarines, Are not as quiet as the United States is. There's increasing evidence to show that we were pretty good at tracking Soviet SSBNs. We were pretty good at tracking subs during the Cold War. I don't know how much we track them now. I mean, you have to assume, and, you know, Soviet SSBNs, as they, you know, they got to later generations, became quieter, and we were still pretty good at tracking them. You can imagine first-generation Chinese SSBNs, Indian SSBNs are going to be so loud, some of them are not nuclear-powered, they're diesel-powered, which actually helps with the noise signature, but uh, you know, it is, it is not necessarily the case that all states that acquire sea-based capabilities are going to have survivable second strike. But this is the attraction of sea-based, cap- uh, sea-based force, that uh, a submarine-based uh, nuclear force is more survivable than the land-based force. Because land-based force, with all the eminent out there now, you can track, you know where launch sites might be, where they may flush out land-based forces, so then you can target them. Um, Increasingly, some states, you know, states led by the United States are are attracted to cruise missiles as nuclear delivery capabilities. Tomahawks, we have uh, a Tomahawk land and air-based nuclear uh, version. The French have uh, an air launch cruise missile, which is a mainstay of their nuclear force structure. Uh, Indians and Pakistanis are also looking at cruise missiles. Um, <clears throat> because they can, what's the advantage of cruise missiles? What's the worry now that with ballistic missile, uh, with ballistic missiles? Right, so missile defenses and the advent of missile defenses, uh, is starting to threaten the survivability of ballistic missiles, so one shift is to cruise missiles, um, which, uh, fly, uh, you know, they they have lower altitudes, uh, they can be more easily controlled so there's more uh, recallability, I think, with cruise missiles than with ballistic missiles, but primarily to defeat missile defenses. Third question is how do you manage them? Some states put their nuclear forces under military control. Some states put them under very firm civilian control. This is a question the United States wrestled with during the Cold War. Initially, the Department of Atomic Energy uh, managed the nuclear pits in the United States. It was under very firm civilian control. And then, as it became clear that the, the United States would have to delegate some actual nuclear forces to the Army in Western Europe for tactical nuclear weapons, uh, the U.S. arsenal became under, you know, came under military management, but still under, you know, civilian authority. Other states like Pakistan are completely under military control. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But fundamentally, the, the question that regional powers, in particular, have to face in ways that the superpowers didn't as much is, what are you trying to deter with nuclear weapons, right? So nuclear we- what, why are you attracting nuclear weapons, and what are you using them for in your larger strategic policy? So some states need nuclear weapons just to deter nuclear use against them, right? States like China, for example, right, which have huge geographies, you know, three million men under arms defense-in-depth strategy, aren't really facing conventional threats on land the way that the U.S. and Soviet Union were you know, facing off in Western Europe. So China and India both primarily have nuclear weapons to deter nuclear use against them. Right? So you're worried about a nuclear-armed adversary, you don't want your adversary to have nuclear weapons and you not have the ability to retaliate. Right? So you're really using nuclear weapons to deter nuclear use against you. And you can then rely on what we call an assured retaliation strategy. Right. You just need to be able to survive what might be a first strike against you and retaliate with nuclear weapons against your adversary's population centers. This is your classic deterrence by punishment strategy. Nuclear weapons don't need to be on high alert. Retaliation doesn't need to be immediate. It just needs to be certain. And uh, you don't need tactical nuclear weapons because you're not using nuclear weapons on conventional forces that might be attacking you. So this allows for much more centralized, recessed management, uh, if that's your aim. If your aim is to deter conventional aggression, right, this was the U.S. and NATO during the Cold War. We had conventional inferiority in Europe. In order to offset the, the conventional capability of the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union, we, the United States needed nuclear weapons, the threat of tactical nuclear weapons, to offset that differential. And we need to threaten to use nuclear weapons first. If Warsaw Pact nuclear uh, conventional forces came crashing into Western Europe, the United States very explicitly threatened to use tactical nuclear weapons against advancing Warsaw Pact forces. Right? Unlike in the assured retaliation case, you can say, look, I have a no-first-use policy. I won't use nuclear weapons unless you use them against me, primarily strategic weapons, compared to here you have a very forward, aggressive, tactical nuclear uh, weapons capability, where you have to threaten to use nuclear weapons first, right, because you're trying to deter conventional attacks against you, and it kind of looks like a denial and punishment mission at the same time, right? And now regional powers are faced with the same question. Now, can anyone guess where India falls? Did I say it already? Maybe, yeah. A short retaliation, right? Isn't they, not trying to, they have conventional superiority against Pakistan not really worried about China invading India and marching all the way to Delhi, primarily trying to deter nuclear use against against its own cities. Where does Pakistan fall? What is Pakistan worried about? So Pakistan is, you know, primarily worried about Indian conventional superiority. And having been at the receiving end of dismemberment from India in 1971, which I'll talk about, Pakistan has operationalized a posture that is very aggressive, very oriented towards battlefield nuclear weapons against Indian conventional forces that might cross the international border and so they have a first use I call it asymmetric escalation doctrine they're trying to they threaten to escalate a conventional conflict to the nuclear very quickly because uh, or earlier than you know you know India would uh, before any new other nuclear weapons were used because uh, they're worried about Indian conventional superiority against it Pakistan actually started its its nuclear program before India tested the so-called PNE in 1974, because on the heels of the 1970s, I will talk about this actually right now. So India, India's security environment historically, right? So it has the 1962 war with China, in which its uh, uh, its its conventional performance shocked even the the you know the Indian army and the Indian leadership, because the Chinese, uh, the the Chinese performed so much better than the Indians in the 62 war, and India decisively lost the 62 war. Two years later, China tests its, its nuclear weapons, right? So the Indian military program gets its motivation initially from its experiences in 62 and 64 with China. And to avoid nuclear coercion in the future against China, India hedges under the Nehru years, and then the uh, subsequent leadership under Indira Gandhi. It does also have these persistent wars with Pakistan, but it has conventional superiority, and there was really never any talk about needing nuclear weapons to deter the Pakistanis. So India had a civilian nuclear program, right? It got a Candu reactor from Canada. Some of the heavy water was, was supplied by the United States in 54, a reprocessing facility in 64. And then in 1974, Indira Gandhi authorizes what's known at the time under the Adams for Peace program. There was a category known as a peaceful nuclear explosion, which was, I mean, there were there are legitimate there are legitimate um, uses. It was believed at the time for the, uh, for nuclear, like if you needed to clear large swaths of land for dams, for example, right? And India was had had uh, uh, some potential uses for this, but didn't really fool it. I mean, a peaceful nuclear explosion is still a nuclear explosion. It wasn't, however, a warhead, right? I mean, this thing was a rickety, I think it was eight meters in diameter device. I mean, it was a hulking, unstable, rickety fission device that they tested in 1970. It wasn't suitable for a military program, right? It wasn't miniaturized. It it didn't have, you know, um, uh, it wasn't even suitable for delivery by aircraft. You'd have to, Throw it out the back of a cargo plane, right? I mean, it still gave them certainly the 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 physics of being able to uh, you know sustain fission, uh, to sustain fission and have like you know spherical compression. All of that was, uh, I mean, it was a plutonium device, so you know it wasn't uh, it wasn't trivial, but it wasn't a nuclear weapon in the sense of the you know that we think of. So a lot of work was still yet to be done after 1974, but it demonstrated the Indian scientists had the ability to at least, you know, design rudimentary nuclear weapons, right? And there are, there are several explanations for why it tested in 74. as was a general security environment. I talked about China, persistent wars with Pakistan. It just won the 1970 war with Pakistan, 1971 war with Pakistan, which split Pakistan in two. I'll talk about that. That was the real motivation for the Pakistani program. But the real explanation is a combination of domestic politics and the power of the scientists in India. So Indra Gandhi was facing a potential series of losses in state governments. She wanted a big win. The, there were several um, uh, very prominent Indian physicists and engineers who promised the, uh, the a big boost in her electoral fortunes if she tested a nuclear weapon, and they really wanted to test a nuclear weapon because they've been working on it. Scientists like to test the things that they work on. And they had been doing this persistently for several years, and she then found her opportunity in 1974 when, right before a series of state elections, she authorized the test. Uh, Empirically, uh, the test didn't actually help her that much electorally, but uh, there was a belief that it might. uh, And so that was some of the motivations for the test. But from 1974 until about 1989, for about 15 years, India's nuclear program went into effective dormancy. There was no high-level authorization from Indira Gandhi or her, uh, her son, who later became prime minister after assassination in 1984, uh, for the militarization of the program. So India scientists worked on some of the, uh, the, the, did some of the theoretical work for miniaturization, getting India in a place where if it had to militarize the program, it could. But there was no actual physical work done on that after 1974. Pakistan faced a somewhat different security environment, right? So whereas India lost the 62 War and then faced China's nuclear tests, but never really faced the threat of a massive conventional invasion from China, really wanting nuclear weapons to deter the Chinese nuclear threat, not the Chinese conventional threat, Pakistan was really scarred by the 1971 War. So the 1971 War uh, was the war in which uh, East Pakistan Was birthed into Bangladesh, right? So there was a refugee crisis. The West Pakistan and East, so Pakistan at birth, in 1947, was split and non-contiguous with India in the middle. You had East and West Pakistan. West Pakistan was dominated by Punjabis. East Pakistan was dominated by Bangladeshis, Bengalis, sorry. Later, Bangladeshis, Bengalis, right? So there was ethnic tension between Punjabis and Bengalis. The Punjabis dominated the politics of Pakistan. Bengalis felt like there were second class citizens in pakistan that created political tension and there was an uprising in 1971 india intervened on behalf of the bengalis to to split east pakistan off of west pakistan now if you're india this is a huge strategic victory right you had two flanks of pakistan you know surrounding you and you were able to make them you know two independent countries right with the benefit that you helped birth bangladesh from Bangladesh from uh, Pakistan, so, uh, you know, th- it's not like they would be allies against you in a conflict. So strategically, this worked out pretty well for India, but for West Pakistan, now present-day Pakistan, this is a pretty searing moment, right? Your, ampu- your east wing is amputated, and uh, it was at the hands of the Indians, right? So as early as 1965, when It became clear that India might look at nuclear weapons because of China. uh, Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto, who was the prime minister that ended up authorizing the program uh, through the 1970s, said, we will eat grass or leaves or even go hungry, but we will get a bomb of our own. It's one of his famous quotes. Remember, this this was said as early as 1965. But after the 1971 war, in January 1972, so right after the 1971 war, Bhutto authorizes a nuclear weapons program with the express intent of a militarized nuclear weapons program to deter Indian conventional power. So it wasn't because of the Indian PNE, right, which was 1974. Pakistan's nuclear weapons program predates India's 1974 test. The real motivation was the 1971 war. Pakistan could not suffer the conventional defeat at the hands of the Indians again. And so Pakistan's nuclear program was triggered uh, for a state that was essentially desperate for nuclear weapons. Pakistan tried all possible avenues, right? So you had the uranium pathway, which was led by AQ Khan. Everyone's familiar with AQ Khan? Yes, we Khan. All right. Horrible, horrible joke. I apologize. But, uh, so he, he essentially stole the Urenco designs. Urenco is a European consortium. Um, uh, he it was, he stole it from the Netherlands he he, he worked at Urenco from the inside he stole the blueprints for what ended up being the P1 and then he modified it later to be the P2 designs right so he stole the Urenco centrifuge designs uh from from Urenco itself where he was an employee he went back to Budo and said look I can deliver uh a nuclear weapons program uh and uh they set up cascades of the P1s at Kahuta, which Pakistan would deny through the 1980s, was a uranium enrichment facility. The then president, uh, General Zia, referred to it as a goat shed. Uh, repeatedly in interactions with the United States, the problem was what happened in 1979. Charlie Wilson's War. Anyone? Well, so Iran. Okay, that's true. There's yeah we. Uh, you had the Iran hostage crisis and the, the revolution in Iran. But you also had, what else? December 1979. Yes. Christmas invasion, right? So the, the Soviets invade Afghanistan. And all of a sudden, Pakistan is America's one of the most useful countries in, uh, in the world for the United States, because the United States decides to supply the mujahideen in Afghanistan to fight the Soviets. How do you get supplies to the mujahideen? You have to route them through Pakistan. That's when the relationship between Pakistan and the United States flourished, because we really had no option, right? History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, right? We did the exact same thing in the 2000s. And uh, when we were when we're at war in Afghanistan, we needed the ground lines of communication through Pakistan. Um, and the relationship between the ISI and the CIA in the 1980s, because of the US role in Afghanistan, became uh, What's the right word for it? Blossomed. But it was always, there was always tension in that relationship. But due to US nonproliferation legislation in Congress, the United States would have been obligated to sanction Pakistan and cut off all aid if Pakistan were to assemble a nuclear weapon. Remember, Pakistan and India never signed the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty. US legislation required that a state that was not a member of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, found with nuclear weapons, right, or who had nuclear weapons, uh, would face immediate sanctions and cut off of U.S. aid, right? But that threatened U.S. operations in Afghanistan, so that couldn't happen. So the there was a lot of tension between the non-proliferation hawks at the State Department and the executive. So the Reagan administration went to great lengths uh, to play fast and loose, on where Pakistan was with its nuclear program. Nobody everybody knew that Pakistan had a nuclear weapons program. But the wording of the the language of the legis, legislation required and it later you know embodied in uh, what was known as the Solar's amendment that the US president certify that Pakistan doesn't have nuclear weapons, right? So as long as the exec, and the executive defined nuclear weapons as the assembly of a nuclear weapon, right? So as long as Pakistan did not Across that line, the executive could certify that Pakistan was a non-nuclear weapon state, and was there therefore, you know, the, the the aid and the relationship between the U.S. and Pakistan could uh, could continue. When you
1: say Pakistan, is this, now is this, so east and west, they're actually separate countries?
0: So Bangladesh, at this point, is an independent country, after 1970. So this is West, this is Pakistan, Pakistan, present-day Pakistan. And this is the this is with Zia. Zia is the is general you know president general. He executed Bhutto in 1979 I think also 77 or 79, uh, and uh, he's the he's the president of Pakistan during the 1980s. Uh, and we we'll get through the there's a slow march to nuclearization right. So 83 there's some Chinese assistance to the Pakistani nuclear program. In fact, unprecedented I think in the annals of proliferation, China transferred it is now I think you know, out in, uh, I think, the um, in declassified document. We believe, the United States believes, and I think Pakistan has admitted, that they've received 50 kilograms of HEU from Pakistan, right? That's a- effectively two bombs worth of HEU, assuming 25 kilograms uh, a, a bomb per, per bomb design. You know, 50, two bombs worth of HEU from China, plus the design for a uranium, uh, a uranium core warhead, known as the Chick-4 design. It was the fourth test in the Chinese test series. So that's 1983. 1986. By 1986, the U.S. is essentially convinced that Pakistan is a nuclear-capable state. But remember, it had to certify it as a non-nuclear weapon state, right? So if there were two screwdriver turns away. You could certify them as a non-nuclear weapon state, and the executive continued to do that. In March 1987, Zia complicates all of this when he claims that Pakistan has the capability to make a bomb in Time magazine so all the non-proliferation hawks go nuts right here you have the president of Pakistan saying to Time magazine that Pakistan you can write he literally said you can write Pakistan's a capability to make a bomb and they did and uh, it was then that you know Congressman uh, Stephen Solars passed uh, the Solars amendment where you know the president had to actually certify Pakistan as not a nuclear weapon state but the language he put in there act- made it easier for the president to to be able to say that and not be lying, uh, because the language was basically a nuclear device, right? So if the device wasn't assembled, the executive could, could legitimately claim that Pakistan did not have a nuclear weapon, even though it, had, it would have the pit over there, the explosive package over here, uh, and the assembly over here, but it would all be on three sides of the room, but you could, you could certify that it wasn't assembled, so it wasn't a nuclear weapon. And so, you know, by 1988, the non-proliferation hawks had given up, and so Lars, you know, quipped that it had a Saturday night special capability. It may not, it may not be, uh, you know, elegant, but it will do the job. And one of the advantages to the Pakistani nuclear weapons program was, given the fact that they had a tested design from the Chinese, they conducted a series of cold tests in the 1980s, but they didn't have to necessarily conduct a hot test to know that their there weapons of work. Unlike the Indians, who were indigenously designing their, their plutonium devices. So by the late 1980s, Pakistan is a nuclear weapons capable state. In fact, um, the war in Afghanistan ends in 19, around 1989, 1990. President George H.W. Bush is president. And as soon as uh, you know, the U.S. stops, as soon as the Cold War, colla- uh, sorry, the Soviet Union collapses, uh, President H.W. Bush refuses to certify Pakistan as a non-nuclear weapon state anymore. Can you talk about a cold test? Yeah.
1: What
0: constitutes a cold test? Cold test is without the fissile material, right? So you, if, if um, so you're, yeah, you're, you're, especially in the, in this case, it's a, it's a spherical compression, right? So they wanted to, I think they were testing the explosive charges, to make sure they get a uniform compression wave, um, because they weren't using, it's, it's a uranium device, but they weren't designing gun type devices. It was still an implosion, it was a uranium implosion device. And so you could do a cold test with, without the fissile material, right? To make sure that you had a uniform compression. So you can do you can do um, you can do sufficient number of tests without the fissile material. And if since the design itself was tested in a hot test, uh, I think the Pakistani's were quite confident that once they had enough fissile material in in the design, it would work. So in, in this period, remember, India is going is in dormancy. But there's a, in response to Zia's claim in Time Magazine and um, several other statements, India brings its program out of dormancy in response, actually, to Pakistan's program, right? So there's a, there's a the narrative, the conventional wisdom is that India, India's program, nuclear program, begat Pakistan's nuclear program, but it's kind of the other way around. So Pakistan's program is triggered by Indian conventional power. India has this rudimentary nuclear hedging program in the 1970s. It was only when Pakistan claimed publicly that it had a nuclear weapons capability that India brings its program out of dormancy. So it was only in 1988, 1989. It was actually winter of 1989 that then Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi orders work on weaponization, miniaturization, uh, production line, all the things you need to have a military program. And India only is starting then at that point racing to develop delivery capabilities. So there were they have indigenous missiles, the Agni and the Prithvi Missile. Um, and uh, so India was playing from behind in this period, right? So it would take India another four or five years before they would have a militarized program that they could test. Once they reached that point, there were several aborted tests. 1995, Prime Minister Rao of the Congress party is on the brink of tests. And um, US Ambassador Frank Weisner goes to, um, Ambassador, uh, sorry, Prime Minister Rao, and says, we know you're about to test, don't do it. You're, the weight of American sanctions will kill you, and Rao backs, backs off. A couple months later, the BJP, which is the opposition party, the, other, the main opposition party at the time, wins office for the first time. They're in office for only 13 days, so they have to pull back from a test that they were planning to conduct. When they return to power in May 1998, the BJP, in its manifesto, says it's going to test nuclear weapons. And yet the CIA claims it was caught off guard when they came back to power after they had ordered a test in 1996, right? Everyone claims that the, the CIA was caught off guard by the May 1998 test. But the BJP had said it publicly, that if they came into office, they were going to test nuclear weapons again. And they did take, you know, steps to camouflage the activity in the test sites. But as soon as they come back to office, you know, two months after they win office for in a, in a permanent majority, um, they test nuclear weapons. It was five fission devices, Um, they cited everything under the sun, but primarily China is the reason for testing nuclear weapons. And then the question was, how does India, now that it overtly tested nuclear weapons, operationalize its nuclear capabilities? As I mentioned before, India has an assured retaliation posture, right? So test nuclear weapons in 1998, then the question is, how do we manage these things? India very quickly decided to have a no-first-use policy, and they were going to have a very assertive management of their nuclear forces and rely on an assured retaliation capability. So no tactical nuclear weapons, just strategic weapons. The capability is under civilian custody. And the aim of their doctrine is to deter nuclear use against Indian population centers. So it's a deterrence by punishment strategy. And they have long-range ballistic missiles. They had some aircraft capability, but they're primarily moving to missile capability now. And they have a very recessed posture. Very few weapons on alert. Most of the arsenal is actually disassembled during peacetime. Some subset is at higher states of readiness. But it's primarily, um, it would take several, you know, several steps up the alert ladder before India is in a position to use nuclear weapons. So they're not, they're not uh, you know, on hair-trigger alert as, as American and Soviet weapons were. Pakistan, on the other hand, so it tests shortly after India. They have moved away from uranium enrichment to plutonium. For the physicists here, what's the advantage of plutonium? Plutonium weapons, right? So the yield-to-weight ratio is much better. So if you want battlefield nuclear weapons, uh, or higher-yield strategic weapons, right, and you have payload constraints, you know, you're trading off range for payload, right? So uh, plutonium gives you much better yield-to-weight ratios, right? So it's uh, about four-to-one advantage. And uh, once they had the uranium devices, you know, they were worried, Pakistan was always worried that India would attack its nuclear facilities. Once it acquired basic nuclear weapons capability through the uranium pathway, now it doesn't fear that as much. And so most of its plutonium production is out in the open and with Chinese help. So there are a series of Chinese reactors and reprocessing facilities that are coming online. Uh, And uh, Pakistan is shifting to plutonium production, primarily for its battlefield nuclear weapons capabilities. Its delivery capabilities were initially bought from China and North Korea, so there was uh, missiles for an uranium enrichment capability trade that Pakistan had with China, sorry, with North Korea, Uh, so it got the Nodong missiles from North Korea. In exchange, North Korea got some basis for its uranium enrichment capability that it now has, and uh, China also sold Pakistan some... uh, The M the M X sport missiles, which are the Shaheen and uh, Ghaznavi missiles for for Pakistan.
1: Pakistan?
0: Well, so if you're China, what's the advantage of having Pakistan be nuclear and uh, who's in the middle? Right? Look at look at look at the they can sandwich India, right? So the enemy of my enemy is my friend. I mean, it
1: seems China had their own nuclear weapons, so you know anything from Pakistan would trivial you
0: know, a of no, I mean this, these are all reasonable questions, and I think they're raised of the Chinese a lot, right? Like the, you provide a state a nuclear capability or assist them, but you don't want to take constant, you know, responsibility if there's a, you know, a fracture in the state, and nuclear weapons fall into extremist hands. And the Chinese will always, you know, you you go to some of these track twos, and the Chinese always wash their hands of it. But, you know, you can think from a strategic perspective why it makes sense for them to have India focused on Pakistan, and this is one way to do it, and I think that's a Chinese mo- motivation. So Pakistan, because it's trying to deter Indian conventional power, has an explicit, an explicit first-use doctrine, right? And this has evolved in the past 15, 16 years. First of all, the, uh, it's, it's credible because all of Pakistan's nuclear weapons are under military custody. Unlike India, where there's civilian custody and control of nuclear weapons, Pakistan is a de facto Praetorian state. The Army is a dominant decision-making body. And so all the the nuclear weapons program from cradle to grave is under Army management. So they they control the nuclear weapons program. There's been a shift to battlefield nuclear weapons. There's a uh, capability known as the Nasser missile, if anyone has been following this. It's a um, 60-kilometer short-range nuclear weapon system. Uh, that would be fielded at the you know rear edge of battle that would target Indian forces if they ever if they cross the international border they have a series of cruise missiles which are also designed to be battlefield nuclear weapons, the rod and the Babur and they have a an explicitly deterrence by denial mission they're trying to deter Indian conventional attacks across the international border so there are some the are any questions about where and where we are in terms of how India and Pakistan think about nuclear weapons in their force postures? Yeah? Throughout that time, was India suggesting at all that they were interested in a traditional war? With- so this is an excellent question. Why would Pakistan—I'll skip through some of this, because the, the crux of the problem now is India doesn't have any territorial designs on Pakistan, right? Why would India want to dismember Pakistan further? It prefers a stable Pakistan, It has no territorial ambitions in Pakistan. There are, there's, look, Kashmir is a disputed, there's just, you know, dispute over Kashmir, but frankly, the line of control on both sides is effectively the de facto border. There won't be much territorial revision over Kashmir. uh, And certainly, if you're worried about a conventional attack across the international border, how do you get there? Um, I'll get to that in one second after very quickly talking about, in the nuclear sense, what the difference is between South Asia and the Cold War. Right? So both sides now have nuclear weapons. Some of the key differences between India, Pakistan, and the United States and Soviet Union are one, rudimentary capabilities still. Organizational command and control is not as mature in either country as in the Cold War, especially in the later years of the Cold War, obviously. But the other big difference, is they border each other. right? So the flight times between India and Pakistan on the order of a couple minutes. The US and Soviet Union was 30 minutes. Right? So you had a half hour to figure out what was going on. In India and Pakistan, you know, you have two minutes. If you have any early warning, and the early warning systems are very rudimentary, but if you have any early warning or indication that the other side is launching a potential nuclear strike, you have two minutes before that thing is going to hit. Right? So your reaction times have to be much quicker. The other big difference is, I'm going to skip through this uh, here the other big difference is, as you mentioned, why would India why would India be interested in conventional attacks against Pakistan? Well it wouldn't be ab initiate, it wouldn't be the first one to initiate conflict. The Indian problem right now is it's facing a Pakistan that is more aggressively emboldened to launch militant attacks in India using organization, proxy organizations sponsored by the state or believed to be sponsored by the state, like e Taiba, Jaishi Mohammed. Uh, And the strategy has changed since Pakistan tested nuclear weapons. Prior to 1998, Pakistan, you know, there's a strategy uh, coined by uh, Zia and General Aslam Beg known as Bleeding India by a Thousand Cuts. So there's a strategy of, you know, cutting India the periphery, right, in the line of control in Jammu and Kashmir in the mountains, right, where you couldn't have a real conventional battle, but you could have, you know, terrorist infiltration, there'd be some attacks, and just, uh, you know, small cuts. But the strategy has shifted since 1998, it seems. The frequency of overt infiltration uh, by uh, regular forces in the Kargil War in 1999, and then multiple attacks on Indian metropolitan cities with these uh, Pakistan-based militant organizations leads to a condition where India wouldn't be starting a war but be retaliating, right? So India's mainstay threat prior to nuclearization was if if you try the strategy of bleeding us by a thousand cuts. We're just going to punish you where it hurts. We're going to destroy your army, right? If you're, you're an army-led state, an army-controlled state, we'll cross the international border and we will attrit your army, right? And that will punish Pakistan, right? So that was the deterrence by punishment strategy India had at the conventional level prior to nuclearization. But post-nuclearization, now Pakistan is doing what? It threatens, It threatens. Was well, going to stand and fight for a while, but in extreme, it threatens tactical nuclear use on Indian forces if India tries to retaliate across an international border, and so that's the scenario that India finds itself now, and that's the scenario in which India would think about conventional conflict with Pakistan. It's not for territorial ambition, or any territorial gains; it'd be for retaliation after a provocation. So, you know, there are a couple of examples. The first is a cargo war. Does anyone remember this? 19, May 1999. So this was a year after. A year after they tested nuclear weapons, General Pervez Musharraf, right, who ended up being, uh, you know, president during the first phase of the Afghan War in 2000, you know, this was right before September. This was two years before September 11th, Nawaz Sharif, man, history does repeat itself. Nawaz Sharif w- was then the prime minister. He is again the prime minister today, by the way. Uh, had he claims he had no knowledge of this operation, but then. General Pervez who who is the chief of Army staff, orchestrated an operation where uh, ununiformed regular Pakistan forces, known as the Northern Light Infantry, the Northern Light Infantry infiltrated into several sectors in, into Indian-held Kashmir, into Indian territory, and India responded uh, with trying to d- dislodge the Pakistani forces. Previously, this exact operation had been attempted in 1965. India launched airstrikes across the line of control and opened a second front across the international border. This time, the BJP responded very differently. Because of Pakistan's nuclearization, the BJP was much more restrained and sustained heavier losses because the threat of uh, escalating the conflict deterred the BJP from you know, the same kind of response that it had in 1965, that, that India had. So it, it, it refused to allow air operations across the line of control. So Indian aircraft could not cross the line of control in hot pursuit of uh, Pakistani infiltrators. And most importantly, they did not threaten to open up the Second Front. The place where India's conventional advantage really you know, uh, comes to bear is on the international border here. I'll show you here. All right, so most of the fighting was here. Right? This is where the infiltration was. But India has a huge advantage in this plain sector, which is the international border, right? So anytime there's been a previous provocation, India has always mobilized forces here and threatened to open up a second front, where it can really bring its conventional power to bear on Pakistan. This time, the BJP refused to threaten to open up. It did not mobilize any of its mainstay conventional forces on the international border, and didn't threaten to open up a second front. And so it took Indian forces a lot longer, and they sustained much heavier losses in the Kargil War because they had to expel the Pakistani forces uh, symmetrically. So they didn't have the virtue of air power hitting behind Pakistani lines, and there wasn't any uh, ability to take pressure off of this front by opening up a second front uh, in the international border. So already you can see India's response is restrained because Pakistan was uh, a nuclear power. So shortly after September 11th here, two months later, three months later, there was uh, an attack on the Indian parliament, right? So you had about a do- uh, half a dozen gunmen break through the barriers of the Indian parliament house. I mean, imagine an, at- an attack on Congress here, right? It would be the equivalent. So you had a Jaish-e-Mohammed uh, and Lushkar-e-Taiba joint attack on the Indian parliament in Delhi, right? Never heard of before, right? That, they, that the- these militant groups, which were nominally supported by the Pakistani state, would attack the Indian capital Right. So you have this attack in December. The BJP is furious, right? Imagine what the United States would do if a militant organization attacked the US Congress, right? So you can imagine the outrage in India at the time. So the BJP contemplates a limited war here, across the line of control, right? So destroying terrorist camps across the line of control. Under a lot of pressure from the US government. Because remember what's happened We are mobilizing for war in Afghanistan at this point right? We need Pakistan. The United States needs General Musharraf uh, to not be distracted by a conventional war with India. Can you imagine how that would have affected the U.S. war in Afghanistan if India and Pakistan gone to conventional war at the time? So there's a lot of pressure on both sides to not go to war, right? So uh, Deputy Secretary of State at the time, Dick Armitage, gets on the phone. He's on the phone, he said, like tw- twice a day with the BJP, urging them to, ur- you know, show restraint. And, the- and India backs off actually for a while. But then there's a secondary attack in a town, a small town called Kaluchak in Jammu, which is an army town, and the Jaish militants killed 36 Indian Army families. And so the BJP at this point is, this is the second peak of the crisis. And so the BJP says enough is enough. So they mobilize India's three, they call them three, the three strike corps. These are the main offensive components of the Indian Army. It's 800,000 forces in total, and they're mobilized in their assembly boxes, which are much larger than shown here, a 60 kilometer breadth, in these three positions poised for attacks across the international border. So this is where the threat of war becomes real for South Asia, right? So the BJP, you don't mobilize these forces just on a, you know, as a bluff. And so there's a real concern that the, the BJP would authorize attacks. And at this point, Pakistan engages in some serious nuclear signaling. They test three nuclear-capable missiles without the warheads, of course. Um, President Musharraf makes very explicit nuclear threats to the Indians, that if they cross the international border, that Pakistan may have no option but to use nuclear weapons. The US and the United Kingdom evacuate their non-essential personnel from India. I mean, it was very serious at this point. And uh, after, uh, after these nuclear threats and, again, a lot of pressure from the United States on India, uh, Prime Minister Vajpayee orders several months later the strike corps back to their, Kent, their peacetime cantonments, which are in the interior of India. And later on, he said, look, I don't, I don't think that a risk of nuclear war was high, but I don't want to be responsible for starting one. And so there was a real palpable threat that if India engaged in this kind of conventional operation against Pakistan and defeated the Pakistan army, that there was a real risk that nuclear weapons would be used. Right. The third instance was the Bombay attack in 2008 that we already talked about at the beginning. So here, right, this was even more audacious in some ways than the parliament attack. This wasn't a ragtag group of six guys in a car. This was a dozen well-trained, heavily armed militants coming by sea from Karachi, quarterbacked, it now turns out, by uh, retired ISI handlers, right? The United States picked up signals intelligence. And intercepts between handlers in Pakistan who were former ISI officers, quarterbacking the operation as they attacked Bombay, and they killed 170 civilians. Right, so we all you know the the media tends to downplay the number of Westerners that were uh, deliberately targeted by the militant by the LET militants, Uh, and you know India was justifiably outraged at this attack. But the government was, again, paralyzed, right? So this time it's the Congress government, not the BJP government, that's making decisions, and it doesn't even mobilize forces this time, right? The Prime Minister, Manmohan Singh, said he did not want a repeat of 2001, 2002. We don't want to mobilize forces and not do anything. So what do we do? And here we have the, you know, the paralysis that the Indian policy community faces is any serious conventional retaliation risks nuclear escalation. I think this is where India finds itself now. And this is from the, a cabinet meeting. So this is, these are, this is a report from the cabinet meeting where the prime minister and the defense minister, foreign minister, finance minister, home minister are meeting. And the conclusion was, when, all the dust, when the dust settled, all the principals agreed that the unpredictability on the Pakistan side and the fear that its decision makers could offer a disproportionate response, including the nuclear option, stymied any possible chance of military action on India's behalf after 2611 is, their, uh, is what they call the Bombay attacks. It happened on the uh, 26th of November. So there's, there's real paralysis now about how do you deter So you, Nuclear weapons can't deter militant attacks against the Indian state. But you've lost your conventional option to punish Pakistan, which was how you tried to deter it in the first place. And Pakistan has, has successfully deterred Indian conventional power by lowering the nuclear threshold, taking a play right out of the NATO playbook, threatening early nuclear use if Indian forces threaten across the international border. So now, after nuclearization in 1998, what we have is more frequent and intense crises triggered by Pakistan. There's a belief that they're emboldened by the shield of early nuclear use, right, knowing that India can't really retaliate with ground power, right? We can get into – we have some time for questions. We can get into why India hasn't tried to develop an air strike option. That gets into the politics of the Indian military, the service rivalries that India has. The Air Force, the air Force has, has always refused to, to think about options that don't involve the army mobilizing because the belief is that Pakistan would would retaliate on the ground and so the air force doesn't believe that standalone air options are possible without a ground option being mobilized so what
1: was Pakistan trying to achieve with these attacks on
0: the so this is an interesting strategic question what does Pakistan ho- so if you're Pakistan you're facing a conventional you're facing massive conventional inferiority which is only growing because the size and growth rates of the two countries are so disproportionate that India's gap is just going to—it's going to—it's going to be a yawning gap at this point, right? So going forward, how do you slow India down? So there's one theory out there, which is uh, these periodic attacks on India's financial and political hubs kind of create the, in these periodic crises, get foreign investors kind of skittish, right? So you get periodic slowdowns be- triggered by this, so you can kind of slow down India's economic growth potential if you make it risky to invest in India. So that's one theory out there. The other theory is, Pakistan has always had crazies that it's trained to attack. Good crazies kill Indians, bad crazies kill Pakistanis, and so they need what you know. There's a safety valve theory, and they've always had a safety valve before. It was Kashmir. Now Kashmir is locked down because the Indian army knows how to, you know, uh, prevent infiltration in Kashmir. For a while, it was Afghanistan, right? You know, there's. The U.S. military has to be asking, why are these guys speaking Punjabi in Afghanistan? Because these are the Punjabi-trained militants, the L.E.T., that have gone now to Afghanistan to fight, and they were killing Americans. And, you know, now if you can turn them against the Indian state, great, right? So there's a, as long as they are not killing Pakistanis, they're good militants, right? And so there's one theory out there that this is a, the Pakistan state still views these militant groups as strategic assets of the states. To perpetually attack and bleed India by a thousand cuts, and you know, if you can't get in through Kashmir, if you can infiltrate by sea to Bombay, great. If you can you know, hit Delhi, great. Before nuclear weapons, hitting Bombay or Delhi really risked serious conventional retaliation. But now that you have nuclear weapons and an operational nuclear capability and tactical nuclear weapons to deter that conventional retaliation, those kinds of audacious attacks are more possible. And so these are the two kind of theories out there. Although and they're not mutually exclusive, right? In Afghanistan the rebels were Yeah, there, I mean I think there, there are people here who can say more about this who are who are who had first hand experience with this, but you know there are a lot of reports that you had Punjabi speaking right. I mean most most of the uh, most of the Afghan Mujahideen are Pashto-speaking, right? They're, you know, there's a the Haqqani network. A lot of, a lot of these networks predate uh, the predate 9/11, and they were uh, supported, funded, and there are strong relationships between the ISI and some of the Mujahideen groups in Afghanistan, right? That ended up being the top. remember the only two states that recognized the Taliban were Pakistan and Saudi Arabia, right? So, the networks that Pakistan had in Afghanistan were very strong and they all, they have these other groups also right so if they needed militants to go help fight what end up being the americans as well as you know Karzai's ana it would be it would be these you know the let and the jaish mohammed so there were reports of punjabi speaking militants well trained punjabi speaking militants fighting in afghanistan alongside pashto speaking haqqani network uh militants so you know there's that was a safety valve for a while and now you know i think this is why Pakistan may have an incentive, you know, for a fight to continue in Afghanistan for a while, so it has some place to send its crazies, right? It's a safety valve for a while, and they're worried about Indian influence in Afghanistan, so that, you know, that there will be those militants we boxed into Pakistan. On the one hand, Pakistan faces, you know, there was this awful school attack recently. You know, there's there's a real terrorist problem in Pakistan also, right? So bad militants kill Pakistanis, good militants kill Indians and Americans. <laughs> Yeah. A right. Do you think that, that, is a, you know, that initial uh, rhetoric is gonna stick. Or do I just I mean, go So I think the I think the evidence suggests the latter. I mean, it is it is it is remarkable that the LET you know, so after 2001-2002 the LET was nominally banned. But they just renamed themselves, Jama'at al-Dawa, and Hafiz Saeed, who is the head of the L.E.T., lives openly, not out in the tribal areas. He lives outside Lahore in a town called Marithke. Everybody knows where they are. There, openly fundraising. He goes on TV calling for the death of Indians, and openly, right? And the fact that he, it, it may, it's an open question whether it's active support or passive support, but at least the evidence suggests, the evidence suggests at least passive support. He's allowed to freely operate. He's allowed to freely raise funds. The organization exists. It could be shut down very easily. It's in the heart of Pakistan. It's like 30 kilometers from the Indian border. The Indians could hit it, but they've refrained from doing so. And but the network is allowed to recruit and operate openly. And we're not talking about like the Northwest Front, the you know Khyber Pakhtunkhwa and the the tribal areas. This is this is the heartland of, of Pakistan. And so it is it is it offends cred like, credibil- like credibility like credibility to think that it's not there isn't some state policy to allow certain groups to operate to some extent while thinking you could target the rest. But there's also evidence to suggest that suggests these guys wear different hats on different days, you know. But the sectarian the sectarian groups I think are allowed to operate as long you know, those are the ones that the other good militants seem to be those that kill Shia. As long as they don't kill Sunni it's fine. So some of those groups have been very, very fierce and are allowed to operate still. Uh, and the Haqqani Network and the LET, as long as they're not killing Sunnis in Punjab, it seems like the Pakistani state is, is willing to tolerate their existence. And so that's an active state policy. And this is different from the Cold War, right? We didn't have, I don't think the United States and Soviet Union had to deal with that kind of proxy level militancy, right? Where you have two strategic assets. You have the militant organizations to try and weaken the other state, plus nuclear weapons to deter the retaliation. So that combination is I think what makes it particularly Dangerous, which is what I conclude here, right? So, you have, you know, India is extremely frustrated, right? And I think the worry in the United States is that if there's another mass casualty terrorist attack in India, how will the BJP? Now you have Prime Minister, a new Prime Minister who is, by all accounts, a little more aggressive than his predecessors, right? A little more hawkish, and, you know, there's. Right now, the stability in South Asia is predicated on Indian restraint following one of these mass casualty terrorist attacks. So if there's another Bombay, how will the BJP respond, right? There, we can talk, if anybody's heard of Cold Star, we can talk about that. You guys can all email me if anyone ever wants to get into some of the, the weeds. But the, the basic idea is, you know, India has, a convention, has conventional superiority. It has not used it yet, right? There's some belief that Pakistan's nuclear threat is a bluff. And that India could execute cer- certain conventional objectives below the nuclear threshold, maybe, maybe not. It's pretty risky, particularly when we talk about tactical nuclear weapons that would, at least, at some point, be devolved to, you know, you know, the brigadier level, maybe. And uh, so you'll have—it's not just one nuclear threshold, but nine. And so you have to worry about one of them deciding that this is the end, and they use nuclear weapons. I think it—you it, know—it. It's, uh, the Pakistani strategy is actually quite rational. It's, it's, deterring, it's deterring with the rational threat that we might use tactical nuclear weapons, but also through a madman mechanism. We're going to devolve nuclear weapons and, hey, one of our brigadiers might use them if you come. And that reinforces the rational deterrent threat as well. And so, you know, so far, you know, both in Cargill, sorry, in, in three instances, Cargill, Parakram, and uh, Bombay, India has been relatively restrained in its conventional retaliation and its response. And uh, so far, that has taken India, off, India and Pakistan off the escalatory highway. But it's no guarantee that that will continue going forward. I think emotions in India are running very high vis-a-vis Pakistan, particularly you know there's increased shelling across the line of control in the past several months. Uh, and if there's, a, if there's a significant attack in a major city that involves the death of many Indian civilians, there'll be a lot of pressure on on Prime Minister Modi to do something about it. And then, you know, all bets are off because you'll have nuclear weapons potentially mixed with conventional conflict, and that would be the escalation ladder. And I think that's something that we're likely, it's this element of uh, terrorist attacks, mass casualty terrorist attacks that didn't exist in the Cold War that makes South Asia quite different, I think, from the U.S. and Soviet balance. Um, and so it's that combination of proxy forces and the arms race that... I think makes it particularly unstable. So I'm just gonna stop there. We are almost out of time, but I'm happy to take questions for a while if anybody has any further thoughts or anything. Yeah. Does Pakistan have strategic weapons aimed at Indian cities or yeah. yeah. weapons also Yeah, I mean, yeah. So th- this is, this gets into concept known as escalation dominance, right? So uh Pakistan also has strategic weapons uh that put most of India's major cities in in reach, right? So the idea be- being that that deters Indian retaliation for tactical nuclear so Pakistan views tactical nuclear use as a war terminating strategy because of the strategic weapons right so if the idea is Indian conventional forces attack Pakistan stands and fight conventionally fine they start losing they use tactical nuclear weapons on Indian forces. but now I have a secure second strike capability also if i 'm Pakistan, so India has no incentive to use its strategic nuclear weapons against Pakistani cities right because fine, uh, nuclear use on your forces operating on Pakistani soil, that's already happened. Am I willing to risk Delhi and Bombay for retaliating? Probably not. Now, absent those strategic capabilities, you're right, then India could easily retaliate and there would be no reciprocation from Pakistan. But Pakistan is trying to establish what it calls escalation dominance so that it could use tactical nuclear weapons and that would be the end of it. So India would have no incentive to retaliate with strategic nuclear weapons against Pakistan. There is some belief that India is looking at Lower-order use options, right? So India has no tactical nuclear weapons itself, but there are some capabilities that could be used for softer targets than just cities. And it may be that India tries to, you know, develop tit-for-tat capabilities, and then that's that's basically your escalation ladder. As well, in the back, yeah. I think part of it is you can't do it too often, right? You do it too often, and then the quarter world opinion. I think you know there's a there's a limit to how often you can do it, but once every two three years is not nothing. And you know there's always chatter. There have been there have been several instances where the Indian Home Ministry claims now I don't know how good the evidence is that they've disrupted several uh, uh, attacks by LET on on Indians on India, um, but you know. Every several years, I think you know that's, that's, that's not nothing. And uh, they also choose relatively strategic moments to do it. So uh, if you look at the timing of the attack on the parliament, two months after 9-11, just as the Pakistani-US relationship is growing again, maybe there's a belief you can get away with it because the US is going to protect you. Uh, the Bombay attack was just as then-President Musharraf was, there was discussion of concluding a back-channel final agreement over Kashmir, and the, the L.E.T. and the India-focused militants acted as veto players, as spoilers, right? And so there was a comp- so, something known as the composite dialogue ongoing between India and Pakistan in 2008, where literally everybody knew what the final solution and you know, peace deal between India and Pakistan would look like. And President Musharraf was very serious about it. This was spoilers within Pakistan vetoing the, that deal and disrupting the dialogue. Right? So India had no option but to terminate the composite dialogue after Bombay. Right? And it hasn't really restarted. And so uh, those strategic moments, I think, are, are, are chosen uh, by, by Pakistani militants to attack India.
1: Yes, sir? So, what is the story? I've heard you know, bits and pieces about Khan.
0: But how did he evolve? where did he come from what was, what was uh yeah so uh that's a you know the, that's a whole a whole other like you know, aq you know aq you know he's, so he, he stole the he stole the designs he provided the uranium enrichment capability to pakistan he uh he or, uh orchestrated a network of global suppliers for the components for the centrifuges which he then leveraged for both state policy right so he used that network to get north korea yeah, uh, It's centrifuge capability. Um, uh, but whether with complicit state support or acting on his own, he also decided to make some money by moonlighting, maybe, with Iran and Libya. And there's believed to be a fourth customer. Don't know who that is. But uh, you know, there's a big debate also in the Pakistan nuclear community about how influential AQ Khan really was. I mean, they're moving to the plutonium designs anyway, PAEC, which is the... Uh, uh, Pakistan Atomic Energy Commission they they were responsible for plutonium production pathway uh, you know they were competing for designs and you know for for uh ownership of the Pakistani program so in Pakistan you know he still he claims to be the father of the Pakistani bomb that's up for dispute but uh some of the some of the proliferation activities uh it is unclear whether they're state sponsored or you know whether there was some state complicity and he just acted on his own, or whether he acted completely on his own. Well, he set up this thing.
1: I mean, is it true? I mean, does he have this business that basically sells nuclear
0: technology to anyone that will pay the money? I mean, uh, like I said, uh, yeah, I mean, he, uh, he there was a catalog. You could you could get a, a brochure for for yeah. And so the, it it is true, right? That you know there was. He definitely had, really, you know, uh, uh, significant dealings with Iran, which is kind of interesting because Iran and Pakistan aren't natural uh, ones that you know, Shia, Sunni. Uh, one, uh, you know, the, they're not they're not natural. And Iran has also uh, been involved with the Baluchistan insurgency in Pakistan. So that he would sell centrifuges to Iran seems a little puzzling. Maybe it was for. You know, it seems like personal gain would be a very strong explanation. Um, there, were some, there was some there's uh, some evidence that he approached Iraq in the late nineteen eighties, also for uh, if to see if they're interested in uranium enrichment. Saddam Hussein thought it was a, a trap, so you know, he, he passed on it. But yeah, I mean there was there's no question that there was this is a big non proliferation failure. Yeah. Yeah, there's no question he made a lot of money for it. But like you would have to leverage some assets from the Pakistan military to do some of this stuff. And there's no way that they didn't some people didn't know about it. Unless they were in on the take, right, which is entirely possible. I mean, I find it hard. Certainly the North Korean deal, I mean they flew Pakistani C-17, right? So they it was military transport that took the first centrifuge cascade over to North Korea. So that was definitely state to state. Some of the other stuff it's just really murky as to the level of state complicity. Were there people in the Pakistan government who knew he was doing it? I probably it'd be hard for me to believe that they didn't, but it probably may not have been state policy. Yes, sir. Last question. I think then we got it. So we imposed sanctions after 1998, but then after September 11th, we needed Pakistan. How long will we need them? One, two, one, two. There are a couple of good books on this out recently. I'm not a Pakistan expert, and this gets into very, like, you know, the empirical evidence for this is, is we don't know. But Pakistan could be very vulnerable. I mean, I think a non-trivial proportion of their uh, revenue comes from, from US and international aid. But on the other hand, Given the militancy problem, I think most countries prefer a stable Pakistan to an unstable Pakistan, and heavy sanctions could really disrupt the fabric of that state. And so it's a a very thin line you walk, right? And part of it is, I think the opportunity that the United States had was in the 1980s. And there was a belief in the Reagan administration that it was one or the other. It was either we needed Pakistan for, against the Sovs or is the nuclear program. But we couldn't deal with both at the same time. So we, you know, the United States wasn't happy. It wasn't like the U.S. was happy about the Pakistani nuclear program. But it's certainly true that the executive was willing to look the other way and tolerate certain movement up to a point, probably on the belief that it was kind of inevitable. There's nothing much you could do about it. I'm not sure if that was true. I actually think that there were a lot of leverage points we, the United States could have had in the 1980s and didn't take advantage of them. But that's also, you know, an administration fighting this war may not believe it has the bandwidth to deal with both. And I think that's kind of where they they ended up. But if there was ever a point, it was probably in the 1980s to stop Pakistan from from becoming a nuclear state in the first place. But now that they are, I don't – it's really hard to see what you can do.
1: Aaron, yeah? Look, there's sort of an overall question here, which, which is tough. I mean, it's a very unstable situation between India and Pakistan. And you either keep going Definitely, the way it's been going, where you take a big step. And the big step is uh, either you're going to do something warlike or peacelike. Yeah. And there is a peace like thing which never seems to surface, which is, look, if you can't solve it by warlike steps, then you have to solve it by eliminating. And that doesn't seem to be possible in, 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 in India. India is the strong power. Yeah. Why don't they you know, stand up? Or what's your analysis? Why don't they stand up and say, OK, we're not going to solve this militarily, so we better?
0: I think, there was a real gold, I think there was a real golden opportunity in 2008. I think Mahmoud Singh and then Foreign Secretary Shivshankar Menon, who's going to be at MIT actually uh, in February at the Center for International uh, Studies with us, You know, he can, he can give more insight into this, but I believe that they were, India was ready to do that in 2008. And Musharraf was ready to do this in 2008. Certain elements of the Pakistani security services and their proxy forces and the L.E.T. were not. And so it, it was just politically untenable after the Bombay attack for the Indian political leadership. And so the spoilers, the spoilers spoiled.
1: They spoiled it, but the point is that that was the time to stand up and, and probably again because you're you're in a bind.
0: No, I think right. but I mean the the politics of it were just too. I mean there's just no way that that government could have survived if it if it continued with a composite dialogue. And I mean it was also it was also a case where the you know they were facing, they were elections were the next year, right? there's no way that the composite dialogue could, could have continued after bombing no country could do that no political leadership could that's just unfortunate you know the unfortunate nature of politics and i think the let knew that right you do you perpetrate this attack and you will kill the composite dialogue and the back channel talk and that's exactly what happened uh, it may be you know it's interesting because uh, sometimes you know you need a nixon a china moment and modi who is hawkish and the bjp he has a credibility to get the right on his side Right? He, he's protected on his right flank, which often tends to be the spoiler in India. So he has an opportunity, I think. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's some movement toward it in this administration, provided there are no other attacks. So I think you're right. All the pieces, everybody knows what the, what the final deal looks like, right? There's some, like, you know, uh, there's one hiccup about whether it's sequential or simultaneous demilitarization of the Siatchim, like minor things. that you could, I mean, those are solvable. But everything else, right? A lot of control becomes the de facto national border. Everything else gets, you know, adjudicated. And maybe, you know, Modi has five years, so it's possible. If anyone in India can do it, I think it has to be somebody from the right. Uh, the question is whether there's a willing partner, All willing partners on Pakistan, yeah. exactly. So, okay, I think uh, we're over time, so we should. I got to pick up my kid from daycare. So, uh, thank you guys. Thanks. <laughs>